Well, once again, good morning, everybody. As we get prepared to uh, see what we have for today, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, I uh, just thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to uh, just uh, present this message here today, one that I believe is so fundamental and important to uh, who we are as Christians and what we believe as Christians. And God, I pray for uh, just your words to come through here this morning. I pray for both your, your truth and your grace today, God. And I pray that you would do what only you can do, which is reach hearts, reach minds, and change lives, Father. And so, God, uh, we know that you are here. We just ask that in a very unique way, you would just show yourself in your presence here this morning. And may all that we do here be pleasing to you. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we begin here today, I uh, sort of feel the need up front here to warn you, we have a little bit of a different message in store for us today. Uh, there are going to be some points today where it may seem like uh, maybe you're in a seminary classroom or uh, something like that, and that is because of the topic that we're looking at today. Necessarily, we're going to need to do a little bit of theology, maybe a little bit more deeper thinking than normally we do. And that's why, in order to help us today, I've done something different. Rather than have you grab your Bibles, what I've done is I've put together a handout that has all the scripture on it that I want to look at. And so this handout is extremely important for this message. So you can go ahead and get it out now for those of you who got it. If you didn't get one, some of you like to sneak by our ushers, uh, if you raise your hand right now, our ushers will hand one to you. And so raise your hand and uh, get one of these in your hands. And when you get this, I want you to turn to the side, not that has the chart on it, but instead I want you to turn to the side that has all the text, that has the, the black bar at the top. And in that black bar, you will see the question that we are dealing with today. Today we are dealing with one question and one question only. Just so you know, there's some over here, this whole row. I wish I could give you mine, but I have my notes on it. Sorry. We're coming over here, yeah? Thanks, Jen. You have one copy, right? <laughs> That's not going to help a lot. But you see at the top here, <laughs> you see the question we're looking at today. Today we're dealing with one question and one question only. And that is the question, is there only one way to God? Is there only one way to God? You know, one of the things about the world that we live in, men and women, is we live in a world of choice. We live in a world of choice. On Friday of this past week, I found myself at Target, which happens more often than I'd like to admit. And uh, when I was at Target, whenever I go to Target, I always like to wander over to the electronics section. And uh, I found myself staring on Friday for a few seconds at the wall of TVs that they have at Target. And if you've been there, you know what I mean. They display all their new TVs on a wall. And it's been a while since my wife and I have gotten a new TV. So they have all the you know, new technology out today and everything. And I was just admiring all these different TVs. And, and it struck me on Friday, it struck me just how many choices we have today when it comes to something like buying a TV. I mean, if you went to Target and you said, I want a new TV... Uh, there are literally a dozen questions that the person at Target would ask you, right? Like what size, what brand, how much do you want to spend, what quality, what features do you want it to have, and so on. There are so many choices when it comes to TVs, and that's for pretty much everything in life. Uh, I don't know if any of you have bought toothpaste recently. I hope you have. But if you have bought toothpaste, you know how many choices there are in something like toothpaste. I mean, literally at Target, a whole half of an aisle is devoted to the different options in toothpaste. It's just staggering the number of options we have available to us. Well, this, this world of choice, this world of option that we live in, it extends even to religion. It extends even to faith. This past week, I did a, a search on Google that I don't think I've ever done before. I just typed in, how many religions in the world are there? 
And uh, I got led to a web, po- web page that said, well, it's kind of hard to tell for certain, uh, but estimates say that there are probably about 4,200 religions in the world right now. 4,200 different religions. That means that practically every adult who attends Friends Church on a regular basis, definitely every single one of us in this room, we could all choose a different faith, a different religion, and none of us would overlap. None of us would believe the same thing. We just live in this world of choice. And it's because of the world of choice that we live in, that's what makes this question we're looking at today, is there only one God? Is there only one way to God? That's what makes this question, for some people, it sounds like a silly question, and for other people, it sounds like a downright offensive question. Is there only one way to God? I mean, isn't that like asking, is there only one TV that you should buy? Isn't that like asking, is there only one toothpaste that you should use? I mean, how in a world of 4,200 religions, how can any religion claim that they're the only ones that are true, that they're the only ones that lead to God, and all the other ones are wrong? In our world of choice, that just sounds preposterous. Well, guess what? That's exactly what we Christians have claimed for literally thousands of years. That's exactly what Christians have taught for thousands of years. That of the 4,200 faiths in this world, there's actually only one that is centered on the true God. And that is the faith that is focused on Jesus Christ and His death and His resurrection. That is the faith that is taught in this book right here. I mean, that just sounds preposterous, doesn't it? That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Well, you want to know what's even crazier? I myself believe that. And so does Pastor Matthew. And so do the elders. So do the leaders of this church. We at this church stand with millions of brothers and sisters around the world and hundreds of millions of people who come before us when we declare that there is only one way to God. There is only one way to salvation. And that is the way that is focused on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And you know why we believe that? We believe that because we believe that's what God says, which is what the series is all about. We believe that's what the Bible teaches. And today, we're going to show you why. I refer you at the beginning of my message here, I refer you to the top of your handout, to the first major bullet point where it says, View One Pluralism. That's where we're going to begin. View One Pluralism. Just so you know, 70% of Americans don't believe what I just told you. Uh, The view that we have here today is definitely in the minority in the United States. 70% of Americans deny that there is only one way to God, and that way is found through Jesus Christ. And if you sort of investigate, if you look at the 70% of Americans who believe differently, you will find that generally they fall into two different camps, two different categories. And these have been given the title over the years by other people, not by myself, but they have been given the title pluralism and inclusivism. Pluralism and inclusivism. And as you see in your handout today, we're going to deal with both of these. We're going to begin first with pluralism. What exactly is pluralism? Well, first of all, pluralism is about the most difficult word in the English language for me personally to pronounce, okay? So just a little aside here, when I was a kid, I actually had to go to speech therapy class. And the reason why is I couldn't say my L's and my R's right. They all turned out as W's. I sound a little like Elmer Fudd as a kid. So I had to go to speech therapy class. There was a lot of Lois Lane likes to lick lollipops by the lake. I would say things like that over and over and over again. Now, I have made tremendous progress in that, but 
every once in a while, it still slips through. So I come across a word like pluralism, that is kryptonite to me, okay? That is truly one of the hardest words in the English language. So if I flub that word today, you'll know why. But that being said, what exactly does pluralism teach? That's what you're more interested in, right? What does pluralism teach? Well, I, I have this definition on your handout. Pluralism is the view that all religions face are equally valid and true. That there is one mountain, one God or salvation, but there are many paths up that mountain. The view that all religions face are equally valid and true, that there is one mountain, but there are many paths up that mountain. Let's go ahead and put that picture on the screen. As I was thinking about pluralism this past week, this is the image that came to my mind. This, in case you don't know, this is Snow Summit at Big Bear, okay? This is Snow Summit Mountain. And you see all those yellow lines there, and what I've done in those yellow lines is I've highlighted all the chairlifts at Snow Summit that will take you to the top of the mountain, that will drop you off at the top of the mountain. And by my count, there are no less than six different chairlifts that you can take to get to the top of the mountain. Well, that picture right there, that is what religion, that is what faith is to someone who, who believes in pluralism. What someone who believes in pluralism will say is they'll say, hey, all of us on this earth, every religion, it's all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to get to the top of the mountain. We're all trying to get to God. We're all trying to reach salvation. And someone who holds to this view will argue at the end of the day, it does not matter which one of the 4,200 religions you choose, they all teach essentially the same thing, and therefore, we're all going to end up at the same place at the end of time. There's one mountain, but there are many paths. To use another analogy for pluralism, the shopping for TV analogy I used earlier, uh, someone who believes in pluralism will say that choosing a religion is a lot like shopping for a TV. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what TV you choose because all of them are going to get the prices right, right? All of them are going to get the same exact channels. And so therefore, it doesn't matter which religion you choose. They all teach the same thing. You're all going to get to the same place. This is what stands behind a bumper sticker that I am sure that many of you have seen before. Let's put that next picture on the screen. How many of you have seen this before, right? Almost all of you. This is the emblem. This is the logo of the person who believes in pluralism. All religions are equally valid. All religions are equally true. And this is an increasingly popular belief today. In fact, I was watching a YouTube video just this past week where Oprah was in it, the great theologian Oprah. And uh, this is the view essentially that she holds to. In fact, uh, either in this video or something else I read of her, she said basically this. She said, listen, there has to be more than one way to God. There has to be more than one way to God. And in our age of choice, this is an increasingly popular sort of view. And I want to let you know up front here today that I get it, okay? I absolutely get it. Listen, one of the dangers of the talk that we're having today is it can begin to feel very much like just an academic exercise. Here are these different views, and here are the reasons why I believe it's wrong, okay? But to make this an academic exercise is, is to actually make a very big mistake. Because I know that for many of you in this room, what we're doing today, it's not an academic exercise. It's very personal. Probably all of us in this room know people, and, and probably most of us in this room love people who believe very differently than we believe. And these are good people, right? These are people that we really enjoy being around and we like. And, and so there's something attractive about saying, hey, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you believe. We're all going to end up in the same place. That's an, a very attractive view. But as attractive as that view may be, there are a couple of problems with it. The first problem, and you see this on your handout, the first problem was what I call a logical problem, a logical problem. 
Take your hand out and turn it to the other side. Turn it to the chart. So I've adapted this chart from something I found online. And what I've done in this chart is I've given you the four most popular religions in the world today. And according to most websites I came across, they are Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, all in that order. And what I've done in this chart is I've given you what the major, I've summarized what the major religions teach on key issues of the faith. And if you, we don't have time to go in this chart in detail, but if you were to take this home and look through it, you would see why I gave you this chart. Because what you're going to see is that no two religions in the world agree on everything. In fact, almost no religion agrees on anything. In almost every single one of these categories that I've given you, you will see that every single faith teaches something different. Let's just take one example. Pluralism teaches that we all end up at the same place at the end of time, after we die. So what does each faith teach about what happens after we die? Well, you see that in the second to last category there. And if you begin in Christianity, you will see that what are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to heaven, right? The new heavens, the new earth, where, among other things, we believe we're going to worship Jesus in heaven. If you look at the next column, if you see what Islam teaches, you see that they also are looking forward to a version of heaven. But their heaven is very different than our heaven. In their heaven, they're not going to worship Jesus because they don't believe Jesus is God. Instead, they're going to worship Allah. If you look at the next column, Hinduism, Hindus don't really have so much a concept as heaven as they believe much strong, more strongly in reincarnation. That when we die, we're going to get sent back into this world to live it over again, to live another life. And then Buddhism, you see, they teach ultimately nirvana. And nirvana, just so you know, as I understand it, is very different than our view of heaven. In nirvana, it's almost like you cease to exist. You become one with the universe or whatever it may be. And so every single faith, every single religion teaches something extremely different about what happens when we die. Now, in light of that, let me ask you a question. Can every single one of these be true at the same time? The answer is no. Either we're going to go to heaven when we die or we're not. Either we're going to worship Jesus in heaven or we're not. Either we're going to be reincarnated when we die or we're not. Either 2 plus 2 equals 4, or it doesn't. It it can't equal multiple things, and that's one of the reasons why pluralism doesn't work. You, You can't have religions teach wildly different things on certain subjects and have them both be true at the same time. A, a professor from seminary of mine put it this way. He said, the differences between religious beliefs in this world are so big that they are what we call mutually exclusive. As soon as you acknowledge that one is right, you've automatically ruled the other beliefs out. And that's why turning to the other side of your hand out there, right next to where I say there's a logical problem with pluralism, I have this question. If we all end up at the same place at the end of time, which is what pluralism teaches, what place is that going to be? Is it going to be heaven? Is it going to be nirvana? Is it going to be reincarnation? Two contradictory statements cannot be true both at the same time. And so for that reason, pluralism falls apart logically. In addition to that, and this is just something I thought about this past week, you know, let's say for the sake of argument here today, let's say that pluralism is right. Let's say that we do all end up in the same place at the end of time. And since we have to end up somewhere, let's just say again for the sake of argument, let's say that the Islamic view of things is most correct. And so when we die, we're going to go to to heaven, but in heaven, we're not going to worship Jesus because uh, Islam does not teach that Jesus is God. Instead, we're going to worship Allah throughout eternity. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? I'll tell you how I feel about that. I don't like that. 
One of the things I'm most looking forward to about heaven is seeing my Savior face to face. One of the things I'm most looking forward to about heaven is worshiping Jesus throughout eternity. Heaven is not going to be heaven for me, honestly, if Jesus is not there. Likewise, if Hinduism is, is, is true and we get sent back to this earth when we die, I'll tell you what, men and women, there is absolutely nothing that sounds appealing to me about that, right? Having to go through junior high school, again, there is nothing I'm looking forward to in that. This past week, I was reminded of a YouTube video I came across a few years ago. There was a, a mom and dad who wanted to take their four-year-old son, Max, to the circus, but they wanted to surprise him. They didn't want to tell him that they were going to the circus. And so instead, on the car ride to the circus, they told him that they were going to a broccoli farm. Okay? They're going to a broccoli farm. Well, this is Max's reaction when he found out that he was at a circus and not at a broccoli farm. Turn your eyes to the screen. Hey, Daddy. Hi, Daddy. Listen. Okay. We're not at a broccoli farm. Where are we? We're at the circus. Wait, Max, there's elephants. Oh, it's the circus. No, I wanted to go to a broccoli farm. I wanted to go to a broccoli farm. We'll find out where a broccoli farm is. We'll go there next time, okay? I don't want to. If we all end up at the same place at the end of time, I think that's the reaction some of us are going to have, okay? So pluralism falls apart logically, but a bigger, bigger deal for me, bigger deal for me, is that pluralism also cannot be supported by Scripture. Remember what this series is about. This is what does God say, right? This is what does the Bible teach. And as you look through the pages of Scripture, you see that we Christians are not allowed to believe that there are multiple ways to God. The Bible makes it clear that there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. There is only one way up the mountain, and that is through Jesus. Now, there are literally dozens of verses that I could share with you to show you that. I've put on your handout the two that I think are the clearest, right in the sort of the middle of the page. The first one is John 14, 6. Listen to what Jesus says about himself here. This is Jesus talking about himself. And it says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know about for you, but for me, that sounds really definitive. Jesus is saying there is one way to God. There is one way to the Father, and that is through him. 1 Timothy 2.5 to me is just as clear. Paul writes this. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, Christ Jesus. There's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, Christ Jesus. According to that verse, how many gods are there in the heavens? There's one. And how many ways are there to that God? There's one. It's through Jesus Christ. And so for those of us who hold the Bible to be the word of God as we do at this church, we are not allowed to believe that there are multiple ways to God. There's only one, and that is through Jesus. Now, I know that that sounds arrogant to some of you. Some of you may be thinking, come on, Chris, you said it earlier, there are 4,200 religions, which means that there are 4,199 different groups of people who believe just as passionately in what they believe as we believe in what we believe. How in the world can you say that they're all wrong and we're the only ones who are right? I know that sounds arrogant. But one of the reasons I do believe that is because of the uniqueness of our faith. 
And it's because of the uniqueness of what the Bible says that God did for us through Jesus. One of the arguments that someone who believes in pluralism will give for why there has to be multiple ways to, to God is they'll say something like this. Listen, as, as human beings, we are, we are finite and we are limited, right? But God, if, they're God, if a God does exist, he would be infinite and unlimited. And there is no way that a finite, limited human being can grasp an infinite, unlimited God. And so all religion is, is it's just grasping at straws, right? It's, it's, trying, it's man trying to know that which is ultimately unknowable. And actually, God, in a sense, would agree with that. On our own, God is unknowable. There is no way on our own that we can know God. And that's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. So that we can know him. So that we can understand him. When I was a little kid, we used to spend long stretches of our summer uh, at the beach. My grandparents had a place in San Clemente, and we used to go almost every weekend during the summer there. And whenever I was at the beach, I used to like to play with the sand crabs in the sand. Uh, San Clemente was full of them. And uh, sand crabs, if you've ever played with them, they're really scared little creatures, and they get overwhelmed by us humans. And so they get one look at us, and, and they burrow in the ground. They will hide from us. We're just too scary for them. Well, whenever they would burrow in the sand, it's really easy to find out where they are. So what I would do as a kid is I would take the clump of sand where I knew they were hiding, and, and I'd take it in my hand, and I'd sort of let the sand fall away, and I'd expose the sand crabs. And whenever I did, they always did the same thing. They tried to get away from me. They tried to run off my hand, or they even tried to sort of burrow through my fingers to try and hide. I was just too scary for them. I was too overwhelming for them. And it strikes me, you know, about the only way that I could probably get a sand crab to be comfortable with me is if I could find a way to become a sand crab myself. I mean, honestly, that's the only way I wouldn't overwhelm them. Well, you see where I'm going with this. That's what we believe God did for us through Jesus Christ. He became like us so that we can know him. And so that's why the Bible doesn't say that we can believe there's any other way to God because God has most revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ. And so if you accept Jesus, you accept God. But if you reject Jesus, you reject God. That's what the Bible says. That's what God says. And that's what leads us then to our second view. Of the 70% of Americans who believe that there are multiple ways to God, the other view that tends to, to take uh, uh, hold is what is called inclusivism. And what does inclusivism teach? You see this on your handout. Inclusivism is the view that although every person who reaches heaven reaches it only because of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, inclusivism teaches that a person does not have to consciously believe in Jesus in order to be saved. Now, that's a mouthful, so let me give you a much more succinct definition. We'll put this on the screen. Inclusivism teaches that although Jesus is necessary for salvation, belief in Jesus is not. That although Jesus is necessary for salvation, belief in Jesus is not. You see, inclusivism grew out of a couple of problems that some people have had with how Christianity traditionally has been taught. Traditionally, Christians have said exactly what I said to you, that in order to be saved, you have to put your faith in Jesus. Well, some people have seen a couple of problems with that. One of those problems is we know that there are people throughout the centuries who have never even had an opportunity to hear about Jesus. Indeed, there are some of those people today. There are people in remote tribes whose language we don't even know. And for some of them, at least, it's doubtful that we'll be able to reach them with the message of Jesus before some of them pass away. So what is God's plan for them? What does God do for them? That's the first problem. The second problem is what may be called the love of God problem. Now, the Bible tells us that our God is a God of love, 
right? He's a God of love, and that's probably how many of us in this room have experienced Him. Well, the question goes, if God is a God of love, how can He condemn people who sincerely believe just something different than what we believe? especially if they have a good heart, right? Especially if they're quote-unquote good people. How can God, how can a loving God condemn people in that case? Well, inclusivism argues that God doesn't. Instead, what inclusivism says is it says that when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised. We're going to see Muslims in heaven. We're going to see Hindus in heaven. We're going to see Buddhists in heaven. We may even see atheists in heaven. They didn't believe in Jesus, but God saw their heart. Maybe, in fact, they had an awareness of their sin, and they they had an awareness of, of their need for forgiveness for their sins. So you know what God did? Without them even knowing it, God applied Jesus' death on the cross to their sins. God forgave them of their sins. You see, inclusivism teaches that there is only one God, there is only one way to God, that's through Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, but someone doesn't have to actively believe in Jesus in order to be saved. Although Jesus is necessary for salvation, belief in Jesus is not. And this view is extremely popular today. In fact, I think in my younger days as a Christian, I believe something pretty similar to this, and I do not think I am alone in that. And I get this view. Even more than pluralism, I understand the attractiveness of this view. I mean, even the title sounds right. We all want to be includers, right? I mean, even that sounds good. There's something about this that just, in some ways, it just feels right. But what is this series about? It's not about what feels right. It's what does the Bible teach? It's what does God say? So what does God say about this view? Well, honestly, here's where it gets difficult. The best quote I came across in in my studies, I have it on your handout. Erwin Lutzer, who's a pastor and author, he wrote the following. He says, if God has a plan to save those of other religions, he has not seen fit to reveal it to us. If God does indeed have a plan to save those who have not put their faith in Jesus, if he has a plan to save those of other religions, he hasn't told us about that plan. Said another way, and these are my own words here, we'll put it on the screen. There is nothing in the Bible that suggests that salvation is given to anyone who has not explicitly put their faith in Jesus, with the exception of Old Testament believers and those without the mental capacity to believe in Jesus. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that salvation is given to anyone who has not explicitly put their faith in Jesus with the exception of Old Testament believers and those without the mental capacity to believe in Jesus. Now, you see at the end of that statement there, I have two exceptions. I want to deal with those first. First of all, we know that there are some people who could never put their faith in Jesus because they were born before Jesus came to this earth. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, some of the Old Testament people, right? What do we make of them? Well, the Bible does indeed say that we will see them in heaven. They didn't believe in Jesus because they couldn't. He hadn't been revealed yet. But they believed in God to the extent that God had revealed himself among the Israelite people in the Old Testament. So we believe we're going to see them in heaven. And then second, there are people on this earth who do not have the mental capacity to believe in Jesus. I'm thinking of babies. I'm thinking of young children. I'm thinking of those with mental disabilities. What do we do with them? Well, almost every pastor, scholar, theologian believes that God has a plan of salvation for them. Now, I don't have time today to go into a biblical defense of that view, but I've put a book on your handout called Safe in the Arms of God by Dr. John MacArthur, and he goes into a biblical defense of that view if you're interested in that. But I absolutely believe God saves people in those situations. 
but for the rest of us, for those who have been born after the time of Jesus, which is everybody in this world right now, for those of us who have the age and the mental capacity to believe in Jesus, what age and mental capacity, I can't say, the Bible doesn't tell us, only God knows, and it may be different for everybody, in fact. But for those of us who have reached a certain point in our life, the Bible seems abundantly clear on this. You have to actively, consciously put your faith in Jesus in order to have salvation. Probably the clearest passage for me on this is what I've included in your handout in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9. Here Paul is essentially telling us how we get saved, and you see this towards the end of your handout, and he says this, verse 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, another translation says, if you declare openly that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13, continue on, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring the good news. And what Paul is doing in this passage is he's telling us why we need to send missionaries into the world. Why do we need to send missionaries into the world in order to tell other people about Jesus? Paul tells us here. It's because people need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. But in order for people to believe in Jesus, they have to hear about him. And in order for people to hear about Jesus, people have to be sent into the world to tell those people about Jesus. You see, if God saves people without faith in Jesus, as inclusivism argues, then how in the world do we make sense of the constant push we see in Scripture to evangelism, to sharing our faith with others? The only way to make sense of that is if people have to hear the message of Jesus in order to be saved. And that's why as you continue on in Romans 10, Paul sort of wraps up this passage with Romans 10, 17, which is probably the most important verse in this passage, which is why I don't know why I didn't put it on your handout here. But Romans 10, 17 says this. It says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You have to hear about the message of Jesus in order to be saved. And so as attractive as inclusivism sounds, I just do not believe that it can be supported by Scripture. Again, I go to what Erwin Lutzer says. If God does indeed have a plan to save people who have never heard about Jesus or people who have not put their faith in Jesus, he hasn't told us that plan. The Bible seems to make it clear that you have to have active, conscious faith in Jesus in order to be saved. And I know that this makes some of us uncomfortable. Because I know, among other things, it does bring up the very difficult question about what about those who, through no fault of their own, have never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus. And that is a very difficult question with what the Bible teaches. And I understand, for that reason, there are some of you today who may disagree with me. And if you fall into that camp, let me say a couple of things. First of all, it is okay if you disagree with me. And it is okay today if you want to let me know that you disagree with me. The line is going to start right down there at the end of the service, okay? And today it's probably going to snake out of this building. But here's what I ask. If you disagree with me, you have to show me a place in this book where it teaches something other than what I'm saying. You have to do that. 
Remember what this series is. It's not what does Joe say. It's not what does Bob think. It's not what does Chris say. It's what does God say. This has to be our source. So if you disagree with me, you have to show me where in this book it says anything other than what I'm saying here today. That's the first thing. And then second thing. You know, whenever I struggle with something that the Bible says, and I'll be honest with you, this is not my favorite doctrine of the Christian faith. I don't believe this because I particularly love it. I believe it because I believe it makes the most sense of what the Bible says on this subject. And whenever I struggle with something that the Bible says, whenever I struggle with something that God is doing, I've always taken comfort in this little verse in Genesis. And you see it actually, it's the very last line on the front of your handout. Genesis 18.25 says this. It says, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? If you've been around this church for a while, you've heard, heard me share a somewhat humorous quote by J. Vernon McGee, where he says the following. He says, um, he says this is God's universe, and he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> and I like that quote, but this week, this week, I found an even better quote. It's less humorous, but I think it's truer. One pastor said the following. He said, if God would concede to me his omnipotence, that's his power, for 24 hours, you would see how many changes I would make in the world. But if he gave me his wisdom too, you would see that I would leave things exactly as they are. And I think that's right. If I had God's power for 24 hours, you better believe I'd make some changes. But if God didn't just give me his power, if he also gave me his wisdom, I would leave things exactly as they are. I really believe that when we stand before God, the overwhelming feeling we're going to have is, God, everything you did was right. Everything you did was just. Everything that you did was good. And that extends to salvation. You know, the Bible makes it clear that nobody is able to stand before God at the end of time with an excuse for why they didn't believe in Him. This is what Paul says in a very important passage in this subject in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He says that everybody who stands before God, nobody's going to be able to have an excuse for why they didn't believe in Him. In some way, shape, or form, everybody has the opportunity to choose God. The sad truth of the matter is most people just don't choose Him. Most people choose to love themselves instead of love God. Now, in that situation, what is God supposed to do? Is he supposed to force people who don't love him to love him? Is love really love if it's forced? In addition to that, you know, one of the things that we need to remember is that our God, and this is a difficult truth, but our God is under no obligation to save anybody. You know, one of my, my, my most difficult things with both the inclusivist and the pluralist view is that it sort of rests on this assumption that God has to save people. And if he doesn't, he's not kind, he's not just, he's not loving, he's not good, and so on. But I think that assumption forgets something. It forgets the seriousness, it forgets the ugliness of our sin and our rebellion in God's eyes. I really think if there's one thing the American church has lost and it needs to remember it's just how serious sin is in God's eyes. Do you know how serious sin is? It is so serious that the only way that God could have paid for it is to send his son Jesus into this world to die a horrible death. Don't you think if God could have found any other price, a way to pay the price for sin, he would have found a way? He couldn't. It was so serious, it cost the life of his son Jesus. And yet, despite that high cost, still God paid it. Why? Because he loves us. 
He loves us like a groom loves his bride. And that is, by the way, that is the better analogy for faith than the shopping for a TV analogy that I gave you earlier. Choosing a faith, men and women, is not like shopping for a TV. Choosing a faith is a lot more like choosing a spouse. It's like choosing a bride. You know, when, when I asked my wife Tanya to marry me, when I got down on one knee and I asked Tanya to marry me, I did not say to Tanya, hey, Tanya, you're a woman. I guess you'll do as well as anybody else. You want to marry me? Can you imagine if I said that? Can you imagine if anybody says that in a proposal? No. When I asked Tanya to marry me, what did I do? I essentially said to her, Tanya, of the billions of different women in this world, you're the one that I want to spend the rest of my life with. You're the one that I want to choose for the rest of my life. Thank you for those of you applauding my choice in a wife. I did a good job in that. But that's what God wants us to say to him. You know, I know that whenever this topic gets talked on, I know that the question always gets asked, what about those who never have an opportunity to hear about Jesus? That's a great question. But here's what I want to let you know. Those of you here today, you are not in that situation. You are hearing about Jesus. And I believe that right now, Jesus is calling out to you. He died for you. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. He he, he rose from the dead to give us a picture of the new life that we can experience. And he wants us to experience that new life. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us like a groom loves his bride. And he wants you to say yes to him. Jesus wants you to be in relationship with him. And more amazing than that, Jesus wants to be in relationship with you. I said it at the beginning of this message. At this church, we unapologetically and we unashamedly preach Jesus. We preach Jesus' death. We preach Jesus' resurrection. And we preach that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And we do that because we love you. And we want everyone who sits in these seats to experience that salvation. And that's why as we close here today, here's what we're going to do. Would all of you right now, would you just bow your heads with me? Would you close your eyes? There is something else that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Every other religion, every other faith is based on works. It basically says to us that you have to work enough, that you have to do enough good deeds to climb up the mountain to make it to God, whoever that God is. Christianity is the only faith that's based on grace. It's the only faith that says that God actually comes down the mountain to us to carry us up. And all we have to do to receive salvation in the Christian faith is just believe. You heard it earlier. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Christianity gets a bad rap sometimes as being the most exclusive of religions. I believe the opposite is true. Christianity is the most inclusive of religions because the offer is extended to everybody. The offer of salvation is given to everybody. All you have to do is believe. And I just have to imagine in this room right now, God is speaking to some of you. And he is saying to you, this message is for you. I want you to put your faith and trust in my son, Jesus. I want you to know how much I love you, and I want you to exist in relationship with me throughout eternity. I want to give you salvation. I want to give you eternal life. 
For some of you, you're hearing that for the first time. For others of you, maybe you made a decision like this a long time ago, but you would admit today that you've sort of been wandering away. And right now, Jesus is calling you back to him and him alone. And if you find yourself in that situation right now, and you would like to to decide and declare before God that you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you want to follow him, here's what I'd ask. Right now where you are, would you do me a favor? And just to acknowledge that, would you just raise your hand right where you are? If you want to put your faith in Jesus, would you just raise your hand? That's awesome. Anybody else? Okay, those of you raising your hand, can I ask you to do one more step? Because we have something we want to hand to you, just a little pamphlet to tell you a little bit more about Jesus. Would you do me a favor? If you're raising your hand, would you also just now stand right where you are so we can identify you just a little bit better to give you this pamphlet? Would you stand now right where you are, please? That's so incredible. So we're going to hand you a pamphlet right now that just tells you a little bit more about this decision that you made and what it means and what salvation is all about. For the rest of us whose heads are bowed, uh, I know you can't see right now, but there are a, a number of people who are standing. Would you do me a favor? Would you give them a picture of what's going on in heaven right now? And would you just applaud for them? Just so you know, for those of you who made that decision, that's a small picture of what is happening in heaven right now. The angels right now are applauding for you for trusting in him. And that's why right now I'd love if if we could just pray. So would you please pray with me? First of all, for those of you who did maybe for the first time put your faith in Jesus, would you just pray this prayer along with me? And all it is is a prayer that acknowledges what we believe God has done in your life. And it just says this, Father, I, I admit and I confess that I am a sinner, that I have made mistakes, that I have rebelled against you, But Father, I believe that you sent your son Jesus on this earth to die for me, to forgive me of my sins. Father, I believe in your son Jesus. I believe that he is Lord. I believe that he is God in flesh. And Father, I believe that he rose from the grave later to give me a picture of the new life that I myself can have. Father, I don't understand all of it right now, but I know that I want to follow this Jesus. And I believe that you now live through me, through your Holy Spirit, God. And I pray that you would show me each and every day how to walk in in, in the ways of Jesus and to become more and more like him, Father. And God, I thank you that I know from this moment on, Father, that my salvation is secure, that when I die, that will not be the end of me, but Lord, I will be able to live forever with you. And I thank you for what you've given me. And that prayer, as I said, that just acknowledges what we believe happens the moment we become saved. And as I said, there is a party right now for you in heaven as a result of this choice that you've made. And for the rest of us, God, I I thank you, Lord, that you sent your son Jesus to us. And among other things, I pray that this message today would motivate us, Lord. There are so many lost people around us, and we need to be bold and declare the message of Jesus. And so, Lord, would you help us to do that? Would you identify those people in our life that we need to share this message with, God? And would you give us the boldness and the courage this week to talk about Jesus with them, Lord, knowing uh, the grace that you have given us, and, Father, knowing how much you love them. We thank you for what you have done, Father. May we never, ever take it for granted. And we pray that this final song would just be a song of worship and praise for who you are and for what you have done in our lives. We love you, Father. We thank you. And we ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.